From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming back to another episode of our podcast. We're happy to be with you. Yes, and we're also happy that... um, you got to teach again a live course for the I first did. time in many, many months. Just recently, people braved the restrictions, which are easing up in most states here in Pennsylvania. They eased up enough for us to teach one of our Theology of the Body Level 1 courses. And uh, it was a special treat to be back in front of a live audience. We've been doing so much stuff online, mm-hmm. which has been fun and opened up vast new opportunities. But uh, there's nothing like a live audience, although it was a little strange. People had to wear face masks, which... Mm -hmm. The impact, I mean, we all feel it if we're out and we're, you know, seeing one another with masks, the lack of that normal facial expression being part of our interaction. But for you as a teacher, I think that's especially hard. It was hard. I didn't have to wear a mask, thanks be to God. I don't think I could have taught with a mask on, but... Uh, looking out at my students, I'm always reading their body language. And a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it comes through the face. Mm-hmm. So I was zooming in on their eyes. There was one day in the week. This was a very interesting experience for me. We took a group photo in which we did remove the masks, and that was halfway through the course. And it was it was a really interesting experience to see their faces having got to know their eyes mm-hmm. for a few days in the classroom. I, I I was almost moved to tears. I had a lump in my throat at the beauty mm-hmm. of seeing these people's faces. It was a little taste of of nakedness without shame. It's what it felt like. It was like, oh my gosh, I see your person and you're shining and you had been covering this and now it's uncovered and I see you and you're beautiful. Aww. It was awesome. It was really, hmm. really powerful. A little taste of heaven. It was a little taste of heaven. There's... It just underscores the whole principle that we tend to forget, we tend to minimize, we tend to even sometimes reject because we're so hurt in our bodily experience, or we could say our experience of being bodily creatures. There's a lot of pain surrounding that, and we can easily eschew the body as unimportant, but it really underscored as JP2 says, that the body is the revelation of the person. Mm-hmm. I have a funny story related to this nakedness without shame and, and how this is related to the face. John Paul II, this is not a direct quote, more of a, a paraphrase of what he teaches, that our face still retains, even after the fall, this ability to communicate the mystery of the person. It was as if in the beginning, before sin entered the world, it was as if the whole body were a face. In other words, what the face still does, the whole body did, okay. communicated the mystery of the person. And I had a student, I was teaching this point years ago, and a student raised his hand, and he was, had this puzzled look on his face. He says, oh boy. Are, you, are you saying before sin came into the world, like we were all just a big Mr. Potato Head? <laughs> like we were just a whole face? I said, no, 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 you're missing my point. I'm not saying your whole body was a face. <laughs> I'm saying what the face can do, your whole body could do. <laughs> anyway, I always remember that funny story. Yeah. <laughs> Should we go into some questions? Sure. 
Sure, absolutely. Let's do it. Hey, I have a question from Julie. Hi, Julie. Since the marital embrace is a sign of the unity of the Trinity and created by God, how can I experience Christ through lovemaking? It could take years to even be happy with the thought of God being in the room. Mm. I do experience the sacrificial love, goodness, and power of the act, but I know there's more to invite God into it more and unlock deeper intimacy. Are there married saints who write on this? Wow, bless you, Julie. Thank you for your vulnerable question. I, I think to comment first on what she said about it can take years just to imagine inviting God into the bedroom and, and having worked with lots of couples over the years, I know this is, this is where a lot of people are starting. And it underscores, it underscores a formation in the exact opposite direction of what we're made for. The world in which we live, this is not an exaggeration, the world in which we live, if we follow the current of the culture, it takes us exactly in the opposite direction, especially when it comes to sexuality, of a formation that would lend itself to openness to the presence of the Lord. So let's just begin right there. Why does God belong in the bedroom? We're made in his image and likeness as male and female. And God himself, what does this mean? Here, John Paul II brings a beautiful development to Catholic theology. Traditionally, theologians have said we image God as individuals through our rational soul. Mm -hmm. All of that is true. John Paul II says there's more to it. He says the prototype here, that which we image is not a solitude, but a family. Mm. God is an eternal exchange of three persons. God is an eternal exchange of life-giving love. And he says it's as if the Trinity were having a conversation amongst themselves when they said, let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and he said, be fertile, be fruitful and multiply. Not just that both male and female are in the image of God, but that the fact of being male and female is expressing the image. Here's how John Paul II says it. He says it's the communion of persons that masculinity and femininity afford. Mm -hmm. And he adds, and on this communion, right from the beginning, there descended the blessing of fertility. So this life-giving communion of persons is a created reflection of the life-giving communion of the Trinity. Our bodies tell a divine story, and there is an enemy who does not want us to know that our bodies tell this divine story. And when I say, if you go with the current of the culture, it's going to take you in the wrong direction. It's precisely here that it will take you in this wrong direction. You will not know that your body tells this divine story. In fact, you will have God over here in one category of your mind, and you'll have human sexuality over here, and you'll think ne'er the tween should meet. But hold on, hold on. God created us this way. God made us sexual beings. God himself is not a sexual being, he's a divine being, he's pure spirit, but our sexuality, the fact that we are made male and female, is a created reflection of a divine reality, life-giving love. From all eternity, the Trinity is, the Father is generating the Son in the Holy Spirit. 
the, from all eternity. The Trinity is life-giving love. That's the image in which we are made. Now, Julie brings up some, some specific points about how do we, how do we go on a journey of, of just, number one, just being comfortable with inviting God into the bedroom, let alone how are we to experience this as a participation in the divine image? How are we to experience this as a participation in Christ's love for the church? And that's exactly what St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, that the union of man and woman in one flesh is a great mystery, and I, I, it has a better ring to it in the Greek. It's a mega mystery. <laughs> Our creation is male and female, and the call to that intimate union is a mega mystery. And it refers to Christ and the church. How? Christ is the bridegroom who gives up his body for his bride so that we might become one in the flesh with him. This is our faith. Our faith comes to its summit in the holy communion of Christ and the church consummated in the Eucharist. From the cross, Jesus says, consummatum est. What's consummated? The marriage of Christ and the church. Our bodies tell the story. From beginning to end, the Bible tells the story of marriage. I've shared this so many times before in our podcast, but it bears repeating. God wanted his eternal marital plan. What marital plan? God wants to marry us. That's what the covenant is. That's what the, the relationship that God wants to have with his people is this covenant of marital fidelity, covenant of life-giving love. God wanted this eternal marital plan to be so plain to us, so obvious to us, that he chiseled an image of it right in our bodies by making us male and female and calling the two to become one flesh. This is what makes marriage a sacrament. It's not just a metaphor like when, when Jesus says he's the bridegroom. It's not the same as when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, or I'm the shepherd and you are the sheep. Mm -hmm. Those are metaphors that's, that reveal beautiful things about our relationship with Christ. But marriage is not just a metaphor. Marriage is a sacrament which means it really and truly communicates the divine mystery it symbolizes. And John Paul II says it's not just one of the seven sacraments, it's the prototype and the model of all of the sacraments, because the goal of all of the sacraments is to unite the bridegroom with the bride, Christ with the church, mm -hmm. and for the bride, the church, to conceive eternal life within her. Uh, so when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, he might as well have said, unless the bride be in union with the bridegroom, she cannot conceive. And this idea that the bride is meant to conceive eternal life, it's, again, it's not just a metaphor. It really happened. There was a woman representing the whole human race, the new Eve, mm. who gave her yes to God's marriage proposal with such fidelity that she literally conceived eternal life in her womb. Now that's the theology, right? And we can speak from our own experience coming into marriage. We were blessed to already know that theology coming in. We, we wanted to live it, but you, you run into your fallen humanity. Uh, and, and we learned the hard way in our marriage that just having the theology in your head does not immediately translate into a lived experience of the holiness of the marital embrace. And uh, coming up on 25 years of married life, we've been through many interior purifications necessitated by pain and struggle that we were both in and trying to get to the root of where is that pain coming from? Why, why is that struggle here? And inevitably, 
anyone who goes on that journey is going to run into, just as Julie is running into, blocks in the heart that if we don't work with God's grace to allow those blocks to be removed, to allow diseased ideas and images we have to be healed, mm -hmm. to allow wrong formation. I had been exposed to a lot of pornography in my teenage years and even younger, and I had to go through layers of purifying diseased ideas and images that going through those purifications allow a deeper experience of the objective truth of the holiness of sexual union. Oh, the sexual union is objectively a holy, sacred mystery. Subjectively, meaning in our own experience, to experience it subjectively as it really is objectively, it demands a lot of inner healing. And that, I think, is what Julie is kind of confronting in her own heart and in her own marriage would be my guess. What, what's your sense of, mm -hmm. of Julie's question and have I addressed it? Julie's first question is, how can I experience Christ through lovemaking? And then she goes on to talk about experiencing sacrificial love, goodness, and power, but says she knows there's more. So I think that's very interesting that there's obviously that sense that you're talking about, about being on a journey from head to heart Yes. of um, knowing things and seeing glimpses, but wanting to go deeper. Um, and I, I think that's wonderful. And I hope that many of our listeners can relate to that and say, oh yeah, yeah, I've wondered that too. One of the things that I find helpful is and I cannot say that anything that we experience in terms of these graces are experienced 100% of the time. Correct. Um, but something that I experience, and I know you do too, is a certain sense of Christ in me loving my spouse through me. So yes, the yes. experience of Christ within our own person can be profound in that place of intimacy with our spouse. Um, I am thinking of this quote from Teresa of Avila when she talks about searching for God and saying, within oneself is the first place to look. Um, I think we're afraid to do that because maybe we're afraid that there's a lot of other stuff in there. Um, Which there is. There is. And I think it deserves mentioned that, you know, there. I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast out there who have spouses or maybe themselves, maybe they're in the clutches of an addiction to pornography. Sure. And when you're in the clutches of that kind of addiction, what you're going to be ex experiencing in your sexual relationship is not going to be an image of Christ loving the church or the church loving Christ. It could be a a very usorial situation where you feel like an object being used. And, and the, the goal here is not just to baptize that as if you could put a blanket over that, some kind of pure blanket over that, and what is really still interiorly an act of lust suddenly becomes holy. No, 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 we're talking about a real radical inner transformation that is required to experience subjectively what is objectively true. 
In other words, objectively, we're made in the image of God. Objectively, the union of man and woman is is this image of Christ's love for the church. But again, pardon my Polish, but we got to deal with all our spiritual shitsky to really experience that as a real sacred gift of self. And yet, when you are, you know, further on the journey, as it sounds like Julie and her husband maybe are, there's also that sense of, you know, I, I'm experiencing sacrifice and sincerity and power and life-giving love here. Is there something more? And there may be like a contemplative gift given of just a place of awareness of heavenly realities that we can't force it to happen, right. but, but it can be given to a heart that's disposed um, but I don't think it's something that we accomplish. We, yes, that, that's been a very important lesson for us, mm-hmm. I think, just as we've been saying, this connection with Christ in the Eucharist. There are so many parallels here with receiving the Lord in the Eucharist. Sometimes receiving the Lord in the Eucharist is not accompanied by anything grand or some kind of mystical experience where the heavens open. <laughs> Sometimes you're just in the communion line and you believe and you say amen and you you take Jesus into your body, you receive him, you swallow him into your very being, and you go back to your pew and maybe you say a prayer and you get on with your day. Other times I've been in, in tears receiving the Eucharist because something opens up and I, I sense something, I see something, I feel something of the objective reality that is happening. A subjective experience comes more in line with that. But we shouldn't expect that in the Eucharist that it happens all the time, nor should we experience in the marital embrace that that happens all the time. And when it happens, as you were saying, Wendy, there can be a tendency to want to kind of, oh, let's get that, let's grab onto that again, let's hold on to that, let's see if we can recreate that. Mm-hmm. And and you use the word contemplation. Contemplation is a, a state of being in prayer where you dispose yourself to receive a gift. And the marital embrace experienced in that way does become prayer. It becomes a deeper receiving of a divine gift. What I could say to you, Julie, is invite that. Invite that in your marriage and speak with your husband about it. How can the two of you enter into your your marital intimacies in your marriage bed with hearts open to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life, uh, which means He is intimately involved in the marital embrace, so long as we're not kicking them out. And I'll, I'll add this just as a, uh, a a very important insight from John Paul II. He talks in The Theology of the Body about cultivating an authentic marital spirituality. Let me say a word about that. So your individual spirituality means not rejecting your body to live a spiritual life. It means opening your body to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that what you do with your body will glorify God. Well, marital spirituality, as John Paul II unfolds it, means spouses open the one body they become in their marital union to the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And so I remember years ago, you'll remember this, Wendy, I was giving a talk maybe 24 years ago, and we I think we were giving it together at St. Mary's Parish where we got married. And this woman was hearing we're made in the image of the Trinity. She had never heard this before. Marital embrace is an icon of the inner life of 
of divine love, all the stuff. She's, oh my gosh, never heard this, but what if I want to have sex with my husband and we don't want the Holy Spirit there? And her point was, you know, they want to use contraception because they don't want it to result in a child. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is exactly why contraception is so damaging to marriage, because that's exactly what you're saying. You're kicking the Holy Spirit out. And when I said earlier, I'm kind of wrapping this around uh, back to where we started. If you're going the direction of the culture, we're going in the exact opposite direction, because the goal of the culture is to get you to kick the Holy Spirit out of the bedroom. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Lord, the giver of life. Can you imagine, and if you can't, maybe ask the Lord to show you where the barriers are in your heart. Can you imagine invoking the presence of the Holy Spirit in your marital embrace? Just as the priest says, let the Holy Spirit come upon these gifts that they might be made holy. Can we not, as husband and wife, say, let the Holy Spirit come upon us in our union so that, our, so that we might become a true image of the exchange of the Trinity? If there's, a, if there's a block in your hearts, in your minds to, to, to entering into that, I'd encourage you to bring that to the Lord and let Him bring down those walls, because that's the goal, to bring the Holy Spirit into the union. It's the Holy Spirit who is the bond of the Trinity, and it's the Holy Spirit who is the bond of the love yes. of a husband and wife. And the marital embrace is meant to be an ever-deepening uh, experience of that bond. And we need to rely on and we, yes. That. And we can trust in the Holy yeah. Spirit to do that. Yes. Yeah. This next question is similar in in tone. And I think we maybe if we felt like, oh, we have more to say to Julie, maybe we can okay. add that to sure. this question, which is from Eric, who says, Hi, Eric. Uh, Through John Paul II's perspective, is Christ saying that if we regain our humility and trust in God, we can, in a sense, go back to Eden and experience that true communion of persons? Maybe I'm romanticizing it to be a return to the perfected image of God instead of the best we can be in our broken image of God after the fall. What are your thoughts and experience with this? So I felt like Eric's question yeah, tied into Julie's, it uh, but it's on a slightly different reflection, and maybe that can um, kind of join together. Yeah, I, that was a good insight, Wendy. I, they, these two questions are mm -hmm. quite related. In fact, John Paul makes the point that it's not so much a return to the beginning. He mm -hmm. says very clearly, in fact, we cannot return to the state of original innocence. We have left that irrevocably behind. However... Let's just pause and cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 why do I laugh when we should be crying? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, a good, it's a good point, Wendy. <laughs> uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa speaks of those garments of our misery describing oh, the loincloths, oh. the fig leaves, mm -hmm. right? Those garments of our misery. We are in a miserable world because it's a fallen world, but there's still those glimmers of goodness. There's still those, the, John Paul II calls it the echo of the beginning. Mm -hmm. There's an echo in our hearts of the beginning. And although we cannot return to the state of innocence, we can reclaim much more of our authentic humanity than, than we dare dream or imagine. The same man, St. Paul, who talks about that war within himself between love and lust, and I want to do this and I can't do it, and he cries out in desperation, who can save me from this miserable situation? And a lot of people just kind of stop there and they think, yeah, who can save me? Yeah, I'm in the same pit. Yeah. But he, it's right in the next line, praise be to Jesus Christ. He can save us from this. But in, 
between here and the end of time, between here and the beatific vision, between here and the resurrection of our bodies, the wheat and the weeds grow together. It's right in the catechism. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa or JP2 or Teresa Vavil or John of the Cross, there are wheat and weeds in all of us. So there's no going back to the state of no weeds, but there is this very hopeful looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies where we will be restored. And what we will gain in the resurrection is even more than what we had in the beginning. So we, we fall, but we're launched even higher through the grace of redemption. So John Paul II says there's this continuity with the beginning through the redemption, but the real goal is not to look backwards. The real goal is to look forwards to the resurrection. We await a Savior, Scripture says, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorified body. That's the good news. Uh, you and I, our vocation is marriage, obviously, and we're working that out. We're working that out day by day by day, this, this opening to those graces. I'm thinking of another scripture. Uh, although our outer selves are wasting away, which is true, you and I are getting old, we're getting gray, we're getting wrinkly, we're not the same young people in our 20s when we got married, uh, we're getting old, our outer self is wasting away, but we're being renewed inwardly day by day, St. Paul says. Some of the things I, I think that speak to my heart when I hear this question from Eric about looking, longing for the communion of the garden, and just think about that word communion and how do we actually experience that? And I, I think of um, some of the content of affection, like what by content, I mean, what is the inner disposition that informs our expressions of affection? And in husband and wife, I think of Adam and Eve and that beautiful description JP2 gives us of their encounter yes. in the garden and and the seeing and the, the sense of a smile that radiates from their entire persons. I think they were smiling here, but I think their whole beings were smiling. Yes, that's what I was saying about the whole body being a right. face. That's right. right. That joy in um, in affirming the goodness of one yes, another. Yes, I see that in, you know, uh, a mother nursing her baby and smiling yes, as the baby looks yes. up at her. That, that affirmation of the goodness yes. of the person. I see that in spouses in that the privacy of nakedness and intimacy yes, yes. that is the content the in the the motivation when when we become purified and we're not perfect but we experience those graced moments of of a deep holy privileged affirmation yes. of the other well said those are those tastes of of redemption yes. that we will that won't just be tastes anymore eventually. Yes, yes. But I think that's what Eric is asking, you know, kind of, or that's part of it anyway. It's like, what are we to experience here? And if the Lord can transform us more and more, that we desire to be that kind of font of affirmation uh, for our spouse and for others in our lives, we experience deeper communion as a result. Well said, beautifully. Uh, reflected on there, love. I think that certainly resonates in our experience. We get those little tastes mm -hmm. of 
affirmation of our person. And we long for that. We need it at our core, that, that affirmation. JP2 has an expression describing man and woman in the garden before the fall. In their nakedness, he said, they experienced the peace of the interior gaze, that their eyes didn't just stop at the surface, but the body was the revelation of the inner mystery. In beholding the other's body naked without shame, they saw in their nakedness that inner mystery of the person. And I'll often ask my audiences, um, especially women, I'll say, ladies, do you prefer to be looked at or seen? And there's an immediate response that we, uh, well, we prefer to be seen. To be looked at just kind of speaks of that surfacey look. Mm -hmm. To be seen speaks of that interior gaze. And I hear in Eric's question, I hear in Julie's question, this longing for that interior gaze. Uh, and I'll, I'll share this uh, also from John Paul II's teaching. He, he holds up the marriage of Tobias and Sarah from the Old Testament. Go to the book of Tobit and look up this story. It's quite the story. They, they, were, they went through some such painful trials. Sarah had been married seven times, and each night in the wedding chamber, before they could consummate their marriage, her husband dies. Come on, oh, how do you, what? Sarah, I'm so sorry. And, and an angel comes to Tobias and says, I want you to marry Sarah. Oh, no. John Paul II, Not Sarah. No. the man of great wisdom that he is, said Tobias had reason to be afraid. <laughs> Indeed, on the wedding day, Sarah's father's outside digging Tobias's grave. You know, he's like, okay, I know where this is headed. But what, uh, al what allows them to face that trial? They face the trial through prayer. They face the trial, John Paul II says, by entering into liturgical prayer. And the prayer goes something like this. They reflect on God's original plan for man and woman. He says, uh, Lord of heaven and earth, you made Adam and gave him his wife Eve. And he ref they reflect together on the original experience. What was God's plan? Then he, he speaks of not taking his wife Sarah for a lustful motive but he really wanted to be a sincere gift to her. He also knows he's not Superman. He can't pull himself up by his bootstraps. He's weak. He's fallen like we all are. So he cries out for God's mercy. Show us mercy, Lord, he says, and let us grow old together. It's not a one-night stand. He's in it for the long haul, and he knows his need for mercy. And John Paul II says, it's that prayer, it's that liturgical prayer that enables them to escape the powers of lust and death that are always trying to attack marriage. And it allow, allows them to consummate their union and live. And it's, it's so hopeful. It's not, a, it's not saying be perfect and then consummate your marriage, because nobody would ever consummate their marriage. It's saying recognize your need, desire that original beautiful plan, recognize your weakness, recognize your need for God's mercy, open your heart to it, trust in that mercy, that mercy is poured out through the Holy Spirit, just as we were saying, this is really a summary of all we've been saying about welcoming the Holy Spirit into your marriage bed. If that seems strange, ask the Lord to open your mind and heart to why that shouldn't be strange. That should be normal. That should be celebrated. That should be rejoiced in. And, and of course, there, there's this enemy who doesn't want us to celebrate that, doesn't, doesn't want us to rejoice in that. So he warps and twists our minds and our hearts to think, you know, God over there, sex over there. We, we have to let the Lord in there, in his mercy, in his love, to begin, us, to begin taking us on this journey or to continue that journey 
of inner purification so that we can live in love as we're called to live in love. It's Is it easy? No. Is it exciting? Yeah. It's the greatest adventure on planet Earth to learn how to love. We're going to have to end it there just to keep our time frame for our episode. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share, Wendy? Prayer maybe for Julie and Eric? Would you Absolutely. lead us? Absolutely. I'll pray for Julie and Eric and all the listeners who are joining on this journey. Come Holy Spirit, I thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the bond of marriage, for dwelling in us as individuals and in our marriage and uniting us with one another. Ask you to continue leading us on the journey into deeper graces, deeper insights, and also help us to trust that we are receiving all that we are meant to receive when our hearts are open and not to compare ourselves or our spouses to others, but to thank you, Lord, for creating each one of us with our unique gifts and capacities and um, just knowing us and what we are meant to be right now. And we ask you, Lord, to have mercy on us as you did on Tobias and Sarah so long ago and as you have on so many couples. Have mercy on us, continue to cleanse our hearts and open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to see you at work and to trust ourselves, to trust ourselves to your smile of affirmation upon the goodness you've created in each one of us. Amen. 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 I just had a little sense as you were praying, Wendy, that There might be some couples out there who are discouraged. And that spirit of discouragement, we know, is never of the Lord. The Lord wants to breathe hope into your hearts, hope into your relationships, hope into your mind, hope into your body. Nothing, nothing, nothing goes deeper than the cross. Nothing. There is no hell that we may have descended into that Christ has not already gone before us and descended into that in order to be with us there and to pull us up and out of it. Trust in him. He is there for you. He will not let you down. Yeah, that that voice of discouragement, man, it can come in there. Mm-hmm. And, and you, it came, came to me when you were talking about comparing. Mm-hmm. That's a trap. You know, as they say, compare and despair. No, no. You are unique. Your journey is unique. The Lord is with you. And we love you, and we're so grateful to be part of this podcast, to offer this to you. Keep the questions coming. Go to the website, uh, askchristopherwest.com, to submit a question. And if you're willing, would you click the link in the, in the show notes uh, to learn more about becoming a patron? We could really use your help. And that goes a long way in allowing us at the TOB Institute to continue our mission. Until next time, remember, you are an indispensable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.